Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you today for your amazing grace. And we want to thank you, Lord God, that this grace is ours. We pray today that we would wake up. That we would be awakened to the hope that we have in your grace working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember when my soul woke up. Do you remember when your soul woke up? I remember when my soul began to wake up. My roommate was changed. In the barracks that I was part of in Sudabay Creek, Greece, um, for some reason, I still to this day don't know, they moved John Rubin out of my room and Joel Myers moved into my room. Now, Joel was a new guy and he was like kind of quiet and reflective and um, kind of the quiet sort of person, very unlike John, it was quite the opposite. And John and I probably were not the best for each other. So suddenly, John Rubin was out of my room and Joel Myers was in my room. During that time in my life, my life was sheer turmoil and chaos. It was a dark time. At the same time, I also became aware of a group of Christians on the base where I was serving in Crete, Greece. And eventually, that group of Christians I've shared before, I asked them for a Bible, and they obliged by charging me $5 for my Bible, those wonderful Christians. And, uh, but they, they knew that, you know, you're only going to give yourself to something that you're going to have some kind of stake in, and that's what they were doing. But what I did not know was that those Christians were not very hopeful. They were not very optimistic. In fact, later on, I heard that they were saying things like this. There's no way that France is going to ever change. <laughs> There's just no way. He's going to ever come to faith. And then Joel Myers moved into my room. As I began reading the Bible, I was being drawn to the person and truth of Jesus. I'd never read the Bible before. I was in my early 20s. I was a young adult. And I, 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 there was a big fat Bible in our house. It was a religious home, but it wasn't a Christian home. We never really talked about Jesus, who Jesus was, what Jesus was about. And the only time I talked about God was when I used his name in vain. So I began reading my Bible, and suddenly I began to be drawn to this life, this truth about Jesus. And then one night, by a tool shed, in the Crete skies, thunder in the mountains, overlooking the base. I went out there and I prayed a very crude prayer and just asked Jesus to be my Savior. But then something very strange happened. I went back into the barracks and I went into our room and, and each room had its own bathroom and there in the bathroom was Joel Myers on his knees praying for me. He did not know where I was 
at that time. But he sensed being led to pray for me. Question. What was happening when Joel Myers moved into my room? The answer to that question provides for us also the answer to some other questions. It provides an answer to this question. Can I really have hope? And it provides the answer to this question. Is this optimism of grace real? Is it real or is it just some trumped up happy Jesus emotion? Well, the Bible does not mince words as we know sin has broken humanity. And I really do think one of my favorite expressions of that is found in Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Well, that's a very encouraging verse of Scripture for our world, isn't it? It's very accurate for us. We read that and we go, yeah, we get that. So, so let me ask you, is do we really have any reason to be optimistic about grace? Is the optimism of grace real? Well, how else do you explain a young adult in the Navy who rejected and ridiculed Christians, who chose a reckless lifestyle, had no real knowledge and understanding of the Bible or Jesus, wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and told the Christians as much, had a growing awareness suddenly in their life of the emptiness of life, was introduced to Christians who gave him a Bible which awakened him to the possibility of Jesus, and then, and then, had a Christian move into his room to be a roommate. How do you explain that? Where's the schematic? Where, what's going on? How do you explain that? Well, I'm going to explain that this morning to you by introducing you to a theological idea. And it's this. It's the idea of provenient grace. Say that with me. Provenient grace. Now, how many of you, is that the first time in your life you've ever said that? Anybody? I just want to see. Oh, yeah, see? A bunch of us. We never, we don't use terms like that. We don't walk around and say, oh, yeah, how's your provenient grace working? You know, we say, isn't God's grace amazing, right? Provenient grace. But this is what it literally means. Provenient grace is the grace which goes before. That's probably the best way to um, define it. We see it, though, all over Scripture. Perhaps the penultimate expression of what we would call provenient grace is the very creation, the place of origins that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. I, I want you to think about this. Here's the Spirit of God hovering over the darkness, right? And when you read that account in Genesis, you see that it's, it's chaotic and it's dark and, it's, and it, needs, it needs order and it's just kind of like, kind of scary. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the darkness and then the Scripture says this, and he speaks and there's light. And light breaks into the darkness. Well, what we're going to try to say today is this. That that same God is still speaking over the darkness. 
the darkness of hearts, the darkness of our world, the darkness of life. And he's saying, let there be light. We just sang that, shine on us. Let there be light. And so that's why we're going to turn to John's gospel as John in chapter 1 takes creation language to talk about who Jesus is in our life and in the world. Why don't you stand with me? And I think it'd be really great for us to read out loud from John chapter 1 today. And we're going to have it on the screen. And we're just going to share together these words from John chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read these words together. Here we go. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And this is God's word to us today. May he bless it to us. You may be seated. So John writes here that we can become children of God, and we say, nice. He says that we can be birthed by God into this new life. And you know what we say? We say we love that. That's really great. But this morning, I want you to think about the eight words that precede this that are game changers, that are words that give you and me a source of hope for ourselves, for, for those around us, for this world that we live in. These are words of hope. We find them in verse 9. There's eight words, but here they are. Verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus, the epitome of grace, right? The epitome of grace was coming into a grace-starved world. He, he was coming to a world that needed grace. But as we read in our text, the world didn't care. And it, we also read this. Are you ready? This, this should be a little bit of a red flag for us in the community of faith in the church. Those who knew better, who should have known better, right, missed it. Those who should have known better even rejected him. And yet, God showed up anyway. God showed up anyway. And he shows up for everyone. The gospel says the true light that gives light to everyone. And we see this incredible picture of God's nature in this idea of provenient grace. Now, let's make sure we're clear on this. Grace is grace. The Bible tells us we are saved by grace, period. Well, let's remember, we define grace as the activity of a loving God in the world. So in speaking of provenient grace, we are pointing to the activity of God, drawing people and whispering to them of his love and mercy, and generating within people, you, me, people around us, this, this need to do something about that. This need to do something about what God's doing in our lives. This need to respond. 
So read these words from John's gospel and see how God deals with every human being, how he deals with every person, the person you see in the mirror, the person whose locker is next to yours in school, the person who's the Uber driver taking you to the airport, the coworker who annoys you, whether it's the person who's been raised their entire life in the church or the person who is an antagonistic atheist who wants nothing to do with the faith, or the person who is the most faithful Buddhist. God himself is active in the world, and he's working in every human life. Al Truesdale provides an image that's, that's helpful to me with this. It's the image of motherhood, and I, it caused me to sit and reflect on Kathleen and the way she cared for our infant children. She was like, she was like a master. She had the mother's end thing going. She just, I'd get the babies and the babies would like, they, you know, they wouldn't be like calm and reflective. I mean, they get in Kathleen's arms and they're just like, well, you know, they're, me on the other hand, they're, they're tensing up and that's because we're all, you know, I'm throwing them in the air and stuff like that. But Kathleen gets hold of these babies, right? And she's, I would, I'd watch her and she would, she would, they'd be disruptive in their own little way, and she would get a little washcloth and wipe their faces, and she, they'd rock them. She'd make sure they're all comforted. She'd swaddle them up, you know, you know, tying them down. And she'd do all that stuff, and she would just be so caring for them, especially when they were sick or when they were angry. And like they would cry, and to this day, that a baby cries. My my wife's like the crying whisperer. She would, she would say, "Oh, that's." That baby right there, that baby's sick or that baby's angry. You know, she'd know our kids. Our kids, oh, they're not feeling good. She just had this thing and she would care for them. But here's the deal. Those little infant children of ours had no idea what their mother was doing for them. They really had no idea. But that did not stop her from bringing grace, her loving activity of care to their lives. So she would care for them, and she would pray for them, and she would nurture them in hopes that they would grow into the people God wanted them to be. And in doing that, my wife and all of the amazing mothers in our congregation provide for us a living metaphor as to the nature of God's grace to all of mankind. The way in which God reaches out to all humanity, whether a person is aware of it or not. The gospel says, the true light, Jesus, gives light to everyone. So what does this mean for us today? In real terms, what does it mean? Well, it means this, first of all. It means that God is the God of the first move. He's the God of the first move. We ended last week with those great words in that question from Genesis 3, 9. Adam, where are you? And in the question, we see that even in the worst of our choices... Even in the worst of our sin, God is still at work. 
Even before we think of turning to him, even as we are hiding from him, even when we can't see grace, God is active on our behalf and on behalf of the world. Romans 5, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That coordinating conjunction is so important. But God. Where would we be if it wasn't for but God? Right? It gives us this glimpse of how someone who is far from God can turn towards him. This is the God who makes the first move. He did it in my life. He's done it in your life. God makes the first move. But let's be clear. Without this activity of God, without this work of God, we do not have what it takes to turn our way towards him, to find our way towards him. As the rabbi Abraham Heschel said, it is God in search of man, not the other way around. God is taking the initiative toward you, toward me. So I want you to think about that today. That's such an encouraging truth. I want you to think about the temptations you face. Think of the doubts you walk with. Think of the problems you walk through. We now have the hope that we can turn to the God who has already turned toward us. Think about your sin that you need forgiveness for today. I think sometimes we in the church walk into the church and we, we make sure we bring a presentation that hides the worst of us, right? But just for a moment, I want you to think about the worst of you and me. Think of the sin you need forgiveness for. Think of the attitude you need cleansing, the selfishness you need to surrender. Think of the hole that's within your heart because God is not the Lord of it. Think of the deep hunger for God that grows in you. And remember this, God is already turning toward you. And even think of the person you love deeply who needs Jesus, the one who is hard-hearted, the one that you have concluded, you know what? He's never going to come to faith. There's just no way she's going to turn to him. God has already and is already turning towards them. Al Truesdale said this, and this is just so amazing. Grab hold of this. No one is a stranger to God. Long before we ever move toward him, God has already moved toward us. But God. Wow. How good is that? He's the God of the first move. And right now, right now, if you think that you can't change, and sometimes it's easy for us to make that as an excuse, you know, I just can't change. If you think for a moment, like right now, if, you, if you're concerned about a loved one, you think there's just no way, here's the good news. God is turning towards you with his grace. God is turning towards them with his grace. This world of ours that just seems so dark at times, my friends, God's at work. God is turning towards us. Praise God. 
This amazing grace is amazing not because it's some concept that just takes care of our sin problem, because it's the loving activity of God. It's the loving activity of God now. Because the true light came into the world and shines on everyone. But that tells us something else, that there's also these, what I'm calling, I, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't figure out what to call it, so I'm calling them whispers of hope. Whispers of hope all around us. My guess is you can look over your life, and I would invite you to do that. I've been doing this all week. You can look over your life and see places that God was working before you were trusting him. And you look in, you know, hindsight's always 20-20, right? You look back and you go, you know, that's where God was. That's what God was doing. And as we look, we realize that God's light was shining. Because God's light came to shine on all of humanity, even before we trust Him. That idea is wrapped up in some famous thoughts and quotes, like Elizabeth Barrett Browning's famous poem, Earth's Crammed with Heaven and Every Common Bush of Fire with God. Love that. And these amazing words from C.S. Lewis, we may ignore, but we cannot evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. That's pretty amazing. And then he says, and the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake. Still more to remain awake to the presence of God. So we live in a world that is crowded with God's presence by the power of his Holy Spirit, and that was the understanding of the earliest Christians. The disciples just heal a man who could not walk. And he, they do that in Lystra. And there, there were people who worshiped like Zeus, the myth mythological god, Zeus and so forth. And they looked at these disciples and they said, these are the gods. And in response to that, listen closely to what the disciples said. The living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. What's the testimony? He has shown kindness, grace, by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Scripture teaches us that God's presence is revealed in creation itself. His grace is given to us to such a degree that the Bible says this in the book of Romans. For since the creation of the world's world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Wow. God is just constantly turning towards us. This all points to one truth, that God is active in the world to draw people to himself. Look how Paul says that to a bunch of philosophers. Not in church, but in the place of Athens, where all the big ideas are talked about. 
where all the big philosophical players come to chat. And look what he says. He says, God did this. He created all things. Now look it. So that they would seek him. Mankind would seek him. And perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's talking to a group of people that know nothing about Jesus. And he's saying to them, you need to know that God is much closer to you than you realize. You need to know that, that God is working, that God made all of this, but he did all this so that you would maybe, you just maybe, perhaps, maybe you'll seek him. And maybe you'll find him, the whispers of God, of hope. So here's my question. Do you see how encouraging this is? Do you see what good news this is? And you, and you see that you and I need to walk into this world, in this God-soaked world, in this world where God seems to be incognito, but then shows up in so many different ways of our life. That we walk into this world and we should be the people of hope. We should be the most hopeful people that ever walked the face of the earth right now. We should be the vessels of hope because of this truth. This is how encouraging this is. It means that God is working in the places of life where it is hard to see him. It means that God is working in the lives of our loved ones who are far from him. It means God is working in the circumstances where it appears they are absent of him. It means God is working in the world around us that by many accounts has rejected him. And it means God, God but God is not giving up. Praise God. He's not giving up on you. He's not giving up on me. He's not giving up on our neighbors. He's not giving up on our friends. He's not giving up on our family members. He's not giving up on the world. And so that has changed something for me. Very practical. It's changed the way I pray for those I love. I used to pray, years ago I used to pray, oh God, save my loved ones. You know, I no longer pray for God to save my loved ones. And here's why. Because God, first of all, has done everything he can to save them. And secondly, God is doing everything that God could possibly do to save them. So I pray for them differently. I pray for God to be in their relationships. Very influential. I pray for the circumstances they find themselves in and that God would use them to do this, to bring awareness to them. Let me give you an example. And this is in a God-soaked world, right? This is, we, we, we serve a living God. So this past week I was praying for someone I love deeply. And I was praying for them and I was asking God to awaken them and to bring awareness to their life about God, about faith, right? So I get a text from them this week, like, like seemingly out of the blue, because we don't communicate at this level necessarily. And it said this, this came in on my news feed, and I thought of you, and I thought you'd enjoy it. So I begin to read this article about a rock band. And the lyricist of the rock band 
and how this lyricist began explaining the spiritual content behind the lyrics about how one song is about Psalm 23. This other song is about this hunger for God. So I read this as I'm preparing the sermon. I read this and I went, God, this is exactly, I was praying for God to bring awareness and suddenly this person who has really no faith background is saying, hey, I, you know, Jeff, I think you'll enjoy this. And I'm going, yes. And I replied and I said, you know, this is pretty amazing. It really points to the fact that many people have emptiness in their lives and that, that there's this hunger for God in all people. Thank you so much for sending that to me. Now, I don't know where the conversation's going to go, but how does that happen? You see, I believe that happens because we live in a God-soaked world, that God is active with his grace, that God is wooing that person. So I pray for those I love about their relationships, their circumstances they face. I, I pray for them to become aware of the God who is crowding this world, wanting to draw them to Jesus. Why do I do that? Because the true light that gives light to everyone has come. But here's an important question. What do we do with this light? Now John does go on in his gospel and he says that something happens to those who become aware because of this light. But now they make a choice to believe. God is now given freedom to work deeply, to change their life. He says that they become children. They're born of God. So something else happens, right? Later on in 1 John, he writes these amazing words. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As Dallas Willard puts it, grace means this, that we are to be, and God enables us to be, active to a degree we have never been before. So grace isn't just sitting there going, this is great, God, bring it on. It means that we begin to arrange our life differently. It means that we begin to make different choices with our life. It means that we become better receptors of grace by arranging our lives towards grace and as a result of grace. So I've discovered something. I've discovered the more I choose to arrange my life around him, the more I grow in his light. The more I grow in awareness of his grace. Because you can have all the light in the world shining on you. You can have all the light in the world shining on you, but God also offers us the grace and the freedom, the grace in the freedom to accept that light and choose that light and walk in that light or reject that light and turn away from that light. But you see, God gives us grace to enable us to live for him. 2 Corinthians says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, literally, in order that, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Is amazing grace. It empowers us. It gives us new life. And as we arrange our lives around him, one more thing happens. We become, this, this is amazing, we become agents of this pervenient grace. Now think about this. God is a God of relationship. 
And so the primary way God's grace is working in the lives of people is drawing them to himself is through other people. Hence my story. God uses relationships to reveal his grace to us and through us. And so in a very real way, we also become agents of this provenient grace in the life of others. The neighbor we have never spoken with suddenly sees us and starts sharing the hardest parts of their story with us. That's something that actually happened within the last month of someone in our congregation. The attendant at the cash register responds to the simple question, how is your day by telling me about the horrific divorce they've gone through? And I could then share about our divorce care ministry. A person moves into the barracks and begins to have a burden to pray for a new roommate. What's happening here? On 2 Corinthians 5, it says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. My friends, I hope you see that you are an agent of God's grace. That's our potential. That's what he calls us to. And when you see that, in realizing you're an agent of God's grace, every relationship now has just changed. When you see that God may be using you to communicate his divine mercy and redeeming love, that you may very well be the person someone points to. You may be the person someone points to and say, they were God's grace to my life. Joel Myers was God's grace to my life. Suddenly, wherever you find yourself changes. And you become a signal fire of grace in the darkness. Because the true light that gives light to everyone. And sometimes God uses you to do so. I'm going to ask our worship team to come and in a moment we're going to prepare for communion. But the question is, why is this all true? Because the true light that gives light to everyone came into the world to give himself away. Through all of life and in all of life, know this, God just keeps giving himself away to you. God keeps giving himself away to you, to me, to others. And that is grace. Someone put it this way. This stubborn determination of God. I love that. This stubborn determination of God to give himself his love and mercy, his power and presence, his forgiveness and holiness, to give that to you and to me, to all mankind. So out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and he giveth and he giveth again. So God does not quit giving himself away to us because God does not quit on us. He refused to quit on mankind and today he refuses to quit on you and me. So this morning, as we come to the table, let us turn to the God who has already turned to us. Even in this table, 
even in this sacrament, as we lay these elements out, as we remember the history of the cross, it's God turning toward us. And even in this sacrament itself, God turns towards us and invites us to grace. So the question really is, will you say yes to his invitation? God has turned toward you. May you and I now turn toward him. And you see, when you come to the table, what you're saying is this. I am turning towards Christ. Or I have turned towards Christ. That's what we're saying. This table is for those who say yes to Jesus. So I invite you to stand this morning as Pastor Shirley comes. We'll have two stations today for you to come. And as you come, we're going to participate by intention where you would take the bread, you're going to receive the blessing of the sacrament of, of, and, and communion that we're going to offer to you. You're going to dip the bread and then partake. But as we partake in this signal fire of grace, I want to invite you today to be encouraged by the God, the God who's at work right now in your life, in my life, and in the world around us. I invite you to stand this morning and I invite you to come to this table of his grace.